You're listening to The Blizzard of Osborne by Michael Sheen Cuddy. Chapter 11 The Valley of the Narses. What the heck is this? Cassie stared at the green cylindrical device bolted onto a pedestal overlooking the valley. The device looked like her father's antique black-and-white portable TV set. Under its shiny black screen was a white button labeled Press to Play. She pressed it. From the pink granite palisades that span the broad floodplain above my river, one marvels at a wide vista of undulating hills, some of which are deeply forested, while others are elaborately terraced with the spectacular grella orchards for which the region is justly celebrated. Wow! Cassie stood on one of the palisades, surveying the valley below. From her vantage, she could see where the Pride estuary curved into the steep bluffs sheltering the harbor. Down below, in the placid waters, a whole fleet of boats had gathered. From humble pirogues to outrigger catamarans to sailboats and yachts, and even a few tall ships of the archaic style, one painted all black and outfitted like a pirate's corvette, Vessels of all shapes and sizes crowded the harbor under a brilliant sun. It's so beautiful. Yeah, well, don't be fooled. Where there's yachts, there's narses. And if they don't haul us in on suspicion of pilfering their goods, they'll bore us to death with their tales of travel to exotic lands. You take a rather dim view of the narses. Don't forget that many narses rank among the wealthiest and most influential citizens of the empire. Yeah, I know, but that don't necessarily make them interesting. It looks like a regatta down there. Well, it probably has to do with the service fair. The service fair? Yes. Every seven years, the Corpus sponsors a service fair. Contestants from all over the Empire compete to win prized service positions, working for various enterprises in Market Market. How do you know so much about Narsi business if you've been stuck up on a wall for years? Well, to speak Narsi properly, one must study the cultural practices of Narsis as well. There's more to a language than vocabulary, grammar, and syntax, you know. Anyone can learn Narsi words... But to speak it idiomatically takes years of study and total immersion within a Narsi community. Kalka! A band of uniformed guards sprung from the trees. Me, myself, and I waved his arms, signaling Cassie and Sly to stop. He said, freeze! Don't move! Sindarbanot in Vakdinert! He says we're trespassing. One of the guards grabbed Cassie's hands and wrenched them behind her back. Hey, that's a bit much, don't you think? Handcuffing a little girl? They ignored Sly. Another guard extended a telescoping rod with long pincers that seized Sly by the neck. Me, myself, and I didn't resist. He held out both hands, which were quickly tied together. Yet another guard collared Jet with a choker halter. Leave him alone! They ignored Cassie as well. Me, myself, and I turned to one of the guards and said, In The guards went silent, glanced at each other, then at me, myself, and I. Kern? Me, myself, and I understood the guard's confusion. He had asked, Did I just hear you correctly? 
Me, myself, and I responded, The guards couldn't believe this strange egg creature was speaking perfect Narsi. The lead guard squeezed a button on his uniform pocket and spoke into it. What did he say? He said we're probably not poachers and that one of us speaks perfect Narsi. Over the guard's headset, a static, distorted voice crackled. Cassie and Sly looked at me, myself, and I, who explained, They're going to bring us to the Count. The Count? Is that good or bad? Mm, that rather depends upon the Count. Uniformed guards shoved them into a windowless van and drove away. After around 20 minutes, the van stopped and the driver turned off the motor. The rear doors opened and sunlight poured in so bright it made them squint. They looked around and saw they were in a narrow drive that circled the rear of a great white mansion. Three men approached from a carriage house behind the mansion. Two of them held leashes restraining German shepherds, two dogs for each man. The third man, the one in the middle, was tall and had impeccably coiffed white hair. He looked like he had just stepped out of a hairstylist's salon, every hair perfectly trimmed and accented by a fastidious little white mustache. He gestured toward an entrance leading into the mansion. Inside the mansion, still in handcuffs or otherwise restrained, Cassie, Jet, Sly, and me, myself, and I were marched down wide hallways flanked on either side by grand rooms. In one room, Cassie saw a group of handsome young men dressed in fancy costumes from another era. They stood preening and flirting with pretty young ladies decked out in fabulous gowns and dresses. As they passed the next room, they could see inside a crowd of older gentlemen dressed in formal black tie, drinking cognac, smoking cigars, and laughing heartily while boys dressed like jockeys hurried about, serving drinks from silver trays. They were brought into a large room with high walls of dark paneled wood. A matching dark wood table sat in the middle of the room. The tall man with the impeccably coiffed white hair, the Count, gestured for them to sit at the table. 
The first thing he said was met with blank stares. Then me, myself, and I translated. The Count is asking each of us where we come from. Every time me, myself, and I translated what the others said, the Count looked as if he'd just bitten into something rotten. Onanis kinderlivord into Nordu Dagoda. The Count says he never heard of any realm in the Empire called North Dakota. North Dakota isn't part of the Empire. The Count continued questioning Cassie and Sly while me, myself, and I translated. How did you get to the Valley of the Narcis, hmm? How long have you been here? What are you doing in the company of a venomous snake and a frick eggman? Whenever Sly went to speak, the Count shouted angrily at him. Kank! Me, myself, and I explained that Kank meant shut up. A few times, the Count said other things after Kank, things that me, myself, and I didn't bother to translate. After much questioning, the Count explained they were in the midst of the service fair, and he had no intention of missing the proceedings. He said he would allow them to observe at least one of the games before deciding what he would do with them. At that, he stood up and said, Me, myself, and I told Cassie and Sly it was time for the Janus event. As they were escorted down the hall, the Count spoke almost nonstop. Me, myself, and I tried to keep up with his fast-talking monologue, while the Count waxed on about the size of his estate, his holdings there and abroad, his investments, the key figures he works with in the Emperor's court, where he's traveled, where he will be traveling, where his children are attending formation studies, his personal achievements in the equestrian arts, fencing, and chess, as well as his prized possessions, pointing out remarkable sculptures and stunning paintings adorning the seemingly endless corridors. Finally, Cassie holding Jet closely, Sly and me, myself, and I were brought into a great room with a high-domed ceiling supported by fluted white columns. The room's floor was a grand expanse of alternating black and white diamond-shaped marble tiles, polished so bright they gleamed as if wet. Throngs of people mingled amidst antique furniture, arranged artfully around a ballroom dance floor, eating, drinking, and laughing. A man in a navy blue double-breasted blazer with gold buttons stepped out onto the empty floor and announced something in Narsi. Me, myself, and I whispered to Cassie and Sly that the greatest greeter contest was about to begin. Then, from a sliding panel at the far end of the room, a line of contestants trotted out onto the dance floor. The contestants were dressed in maroon tunics with brass buttons and gold-embroidered epaulets. Their outfits looked like those of doormen at ritzy hotels in a bygone era, but once all the contestants lined up for review, Cassie saw how ill-fitting their uniforms were. Close up, the contestants looked less like doormen and more like organ grinders' monkeys. Each one carried three oversized tools, mop, broom, dustpan. Next, a crew of workers in dark overalls brought out large buckets and balanced them on top of the contestants' heads. 
Raucous laughter waved through the crowd as splashes of liquid that looked and smelled like vomit slopped over the rims of the buckets onto the contestants. The audience cheered when a boy dressed as a jockey led a team of beautiful white horses into the room. The Count leaned over and said something to me, myself, and I. Me, myself, and I turned and explained to Cassie and Sly. The Count says the challenge is for the contestants to catch the horse's effluent before it falls onto the floor, and to do so without spilling any of the pig slop loaded into the buckets balanced on top of their heads. Needless to say, mayhem followed. Again, the Count whispered something to me, myself, and I, which he then relayed to Cassie and Sly. Apparently the horses have been fed with oats and water laced with powerful laxatives and diuretics to provide the contestants with the added incentive. contest played out frenetically. Great extrusions and streams of horse effluent flowed, some of it expertly caught before plopping or splashing onto the marble floor, but much of it was missed, causing the audience to shout and signal thumbs down, as the frantic contestants kept spilling pig slop from their buckets all over themselves and their fellow challengers. Just as the spectacle was spinning into a mess of stinking pandemonium, the crowd gasped. A squad of icemen crashed through the open doors, shouting and waving shock blasters. The icemen, suited up in their white adamantium impermeum armor, zeroed in on the contestants. Quickly scanning the group, they seized the darker-skinned ones and zapped them on the spot. The Count strode out onto the ballroom floor and said something to one of the Icemen, who shouted back and waved his shock blaster. The Count looked around, but his bodyguards were nowhere in sight. Sly saw what was happening. He nudged Cassie and hissed, Follow me! What's going on? Just follow me, now! Sly darted out of the mansion, across a strip of grass, and into the carriage house behind the mansion. He slid along until they came to the horse barn. Cassie, go hide under the haystack, and not a peep out of you, and that goes for Jet, too. Suddenly, Sly stood up, flared his menacing cowl, and hissed. Holy fuck! Cease fire! Cease fire! Are you mad? You hit one of the Count's prize horses and we're dead, man! Well, what's a damn cobra doing in the middle of an horse barn? I don't know, but I don't plan to stick around and find out, all right? 
next. With the Iceman in hot pursuit, Cassie, Jet, Sly, and me, myself, and I are forced to cross a perilous river to escape. But there's something very wrong on the far side, and it's making them sick. <laughs> <laughs>